Father Joseph, Father Timothy, Deacon Timothy, little Timothy from Russia, I just met this morning. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we gathered here once again in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and of our most holy Theotokos, his mother, whose domitian, resurrection, ascension, and assumption we're all preparing to celebrate in a few days. It is the summer Paschal feast. It is a small Pascha. It is a most joyous feast because for the first time in the history of mankind, one like us in all regards born from a man and a woman, just like us, with the same body and soul, just like ours, surpassed the angels, surpassed the cherubim and the seraphim in virtues, in purity and humility, and developed such a powerful electromagnetic field, so to speak, such a strong energy which attracted and united earth with heaven. Her ultimate beauty attracted the archetypal beauty, as the fathers say, the creator of all, God the Logos, God the Word. This great mystery silenced through the eons, through the ages, became manifest because of the yes of the Virgin. The new era begins. The New Testament, the time of grace, the old Adam and the old Eve, they close paradise by saying yes to Satan and no to God. Now the new Adam and the new Eve mapped out our journey to re-enter paradise. The body of our beloved Virgin hosted the Son of the Most High, clothed Him with human flesh, which He united with mystically with His divinity. His body has become the Mother Church, which adopts, washes, nourishes all her children and guides them through their destination. We've renounced Satan back in the Norfolk as we come into the church. We've renounced Satan during our baptism. And then we come in the nave, where you're sitting right now, in the main body, and we receive our nourishment here on a daily basis, through the Word of God, through catechism, through services, and every time there's a divine liturgy, we approach and we come up to the solea, where the new Adam and the new Eve 
will give us the medicine of immortality, Holy Communion, to change our earthly blood to royal blood, since we are all ordained as priests and kings. Thank you. We are Vasilion Iratevma. We are priests and kings according to the book of the Revelation. Members of the royal priesthood. God says in the Old Testament, I said you are gods. We want to be gods by grace. That's why Christ came into the world. The purpose of our church, the purpose, our purpose, is to come into the church and to follow the path of the new Adam and the new Eve, to go through adoption, spiritual growth, crucifixion, death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement in the kingdom of God. That is our destination. It's a royal calling. What a treasure. We are called to be next to the cherubim, enthroned with Christ. Heavenly eagles. And yet most of us live our lives like sparrows, wasting our life running after flies. The body of our Lord and his mother resurrected in three days. Our bodies will follow much later, during the final resurrection. The bodies of our Lord and his mother were immaculate, sinless, weightless. The earth could not hold them down, as the church fathers write. Our bodies, unfortunately, have tasted the poison of sin and have much affinity to the works of the flesh, to death. Hence, we have the death of the body, which can be a temporary death if we live the life of the church. It will be a temporary death which will be overturned by the last trumpet, so we can all live with the Lord forever. This weekend, by the grace of God, we will attempt to graze and quench our thirst through the pages of St. Nicodemus, the Hagarite. He will lead us through the spring-filled meadows of the ninth ode, the ode of the birth-giver of God, the Theotokos. So our soul can learn to magnify the Lord along with her. So our spirit can also rejoice in her Son and our God, our Savior, and her Savior. You were taught that our Orthodox Church honors three theologians. And we're not here to contest, to contest that. St. John the Divine, St. Gregory the Theologian, and St. Simeon the New Theologian. But the theologian of theologians, 
The ontological theologian, the absolute theologian, is the most holy birth giver of God, the Theotokos, the crown jewel of all creation. She physically carried and nurtured the Theos Logos inside of her. Her immense purity made her God-conceiver, God-carrier, God-birth-giver, God-caretaker, God-embracer, God-sweet-kisser, God-breastfeeder. In Christ, in the one and same person, we have the entire divinity, according to St. Paul. We have the God-men. No other theologian, no other person in history, older or recent, has approximated such a relation, such a relationship with God and never will. Her entire existence, her entire being, is a fountain of theology, an ocean of theology. Her entire life, in the, in the Akathist, in the salutation, if you remember the verse, rejoice you who have taught no one by words. She doesn't need to teach by words. She only spoke very few words in the scriptures. Her entire family is a fountain of theology. Her name, Mariam, or Maria, has been the contemplation and the amazement of the church fathers of all ages. According to St. Hieronymus, it is derived from the root word ayah of the Hebrew, which means Lord. And as the mother of the Lord, she naturally becomes the lady of the world, the queen of earth and heaven, as David prophesied in his 45th Psalm, which we analyzed, I believe, last session, at the last session here several years ago. According to St. Ambrose, Ambrose, Maria relates to the Latin word Maria, where we get the word marine, which pertains to oceans, to the sea. And as the vast oceans contain vast volumes of water, and they receive all the water of the rivers and springs and tributaries, in the same way the Holy Theotokos contains all the gifts and all the graces of the Holy Spirit, much more so than the rest of the noetic and sensible creation of angels and people. So she's the sea that caused the noetic Pharaoh to drown. She caused the noetic Pharaoh, the demons, the devil, to drown, to lose their power. She is the beautiful sea that raised the heavenly ichthys in Greek. Ichthys, 
Ιησούς Χριστός Θεού Υιός Σωτήρ. The sea is the symbol of goodness and of the grace of God. And in a symbolic imagery of the book of the Revelation, in the 15th chapter, the holy writer John saw something like a sealed glass, and all those victorious, they were stepping on this sea of glass, the saints, the martyrs, on the top of the sea of glass, on the sea of crystal. But the sea of glass, then, is the floor of the heaven, and it is translucent. And it becomes the connection between earth and heaven. And some other Eastern fathers who love to rest their mind in the ever-virgin, in the ever-so-fragrant meadows of the Theotokos, see some providential origin in the name Maria, the Greek name, and that's where That's what the Greek fathers worked with. They see in her name the combination of the virtues of the women of the Old Testament. In the letter M, they see the virginity of Miriam, the sister of Aaron and Moses. Miriam was a virgin and a leader of the Israelite women, very virtuous. Immediately after crossing the Red Sea, when Moses be- began to lead the men in the hymns of God, in doxology of God, when they crossed the Red Sea and defeated the Egyptians, and we have the two odes of Moses in the Old Testament, which we'll talk a little bit about that later, Miriam led the women She grabbed a timbrel and she began to sing to the Lord and praise the Lord. She was a prophetess. Miriam was a prophetess. And the Theotokos has her virtue of virginity. In the letter A from the letter Maria, the fathers see the faith of Anna. From the Septuagint. In the King James, there's an H there called Hannah. But in the Greek Septuagint, the name is Anna. And, and she was barren. She couldn't have any children. And her faith was really powerful. And her husband loved her very much. But she had a rival. The rival was Fanana the other wife of her husband, who had a number of children. She had four or five children. And she constantly used to castigate the innocent Anna for being barren and ridicule her and put her down. So on one of these trips to the temple, Elkanah gave a portion to all the children to offer to God and a portion to Fanana, his other wife, but because he loved Anna because of her virtues, he gave her two portions. And 
her rival, Fanana, just totally crucified her on the way and totally uh, demoralized her. And her prayer, Anna's prayer, became so strong in the temple. When she made her offering, she sat there and she concentrated all her might and all her mind and spirit to God to the point where she was just moving her lips. She was exercised in the prayer of the heart. And the priest thought that she was drunk. And he told her, Woman, you came to the temple drunk. And he said, No, the servant of the Lord is praying. And this is my prayer. And please receive my offering. And my prayer is for God to open my womb so he can defeat my enemies. And if I have a child, I will dedicate it to the Lord. And lo and behold, a few days later, she conceived and she had Samuel the prophet. And when he became three years old, she walked into the temple and left him there. And she resembles the Theotokos in that sense because she was, the Virgin Mary, was also dedicated to the temple. In the letter R, they see the beautiful Rachel, the apple of Jacob's eyes. The Virgin Mary, according to tradition, was the most beautiful, the most fair woman that ever appeared on earth. Modest, humble, graceful, beautiful, inside and out. The Rose of Sharon, according to the Song of Songs. In the letter I, they see the resolve and the valor of Ilvif. Again, in a Septuagint, Judith begins with an I. Ilvif. Judith was an amazing woman. More valiant than all the men of Israel. Stronger than all the men of Israel. Because she delivered her nation from Nebuchadnezzar. She delivered a crushing defeat to Nebuchadnezzar. As I said, she had more bravery than all the men found in Israel because she walked all the way to the tent of Holofernes, the head general of Nebuchadnezzar. She dressed very beautifully, walked in, he received her, and then she beheaded him. Took his head right out. Took him right out. Just like the Virgin Mary took Satan right out. She beheaded the Noetic demons. Destroyed their power by bringing in the Son of Righteousness. So the Holy Theotokos, just like the Judith of old, 
became the ultra commander of the people of God, the super champion in the battle against the evil one. She served the incarnation of God who crushed the head of the ancient serpent. In the final letter, Alpha, A, they see Abigail. Who remembers Abigail? Great woman. Prudent woman. Married to a very nasty husband. Neighbor. King David, the king of Israel, with his 400 men, he was running away from Saul at the time. He didn't want to kill Saul. He did not want to do any harm to God's anointed. So he's escaping Saul and his men are hungry. And they happen to be next to the land of Nabal who has thousands of sheep, thousands of goats. He's very wealthy. And they protect his land. The soldiers don't touch anything. But then they become hungry and they send a number of men to kindly ask for some food so they can sustain themselves. And Nabal, in his arrogance, responds, My food is for me and my people. I have nothing for you. Anybody who wants can just get up and be a king. Well, David was ready to exterminate his whole clan. Let's not forget, this is the Old Testament now. David swears that by tomorrow morning, not a single male will be alive. And the great Abigail, when she finds this out, one of the servants who was prudent runs to her and tells her, Look, your nasty husband has done something very evil, very terrible. This is what happened. She doesn't waste a moment. She gets several hundred cakes. She takes a few sheep, prepares them, plenty of food, gets animals, and runs to David and pays homage to him. Venerates David and takes the entire blame on herself. She says, look, forget my husband. The entire fault is mine. I wasn't there. Please. And this put out the flame that had kindled inside David. And he spared, he saved her entire family. In the same way, the Virgin Mary spared the entire humanity from the fire of sin, from the fires of Hades. Unfortunately, Nabal was not spared. When he found out the next day what happened, just by hearing 
Because that's what happens. You see, people who are very arrogant, very proud, they're also very cowardly. Just when he heard what David would do to him, the next day he got a stroke, and in ten, in ten days he died. And later on she became David's wife. So all these virtues became the possession of the ever-virgin. All these virtues were developed to the ultimate in her years of upbringing in the Holy of Holies. She was taught by the priests. She was guarded by the angels. And lived a life of a true hazy cast. According to St. Gregory Palamas, she was the first one who really devised the prayer above speech, above imagination, above thoughts, to get above all that and get into the noetic sphere, into the noetic prayer, the prayer of the hazycasts. So she's the first true hazycast. She was not at all ignorant of the functions of the body, although she was secluded in a temple. She was wise in all regards. She read the scriptures. She knew the scriptures. She knew the stories of the Old Testament. She knew about the Virgin. As a matter of fact, one of our traditions says that when she was reading Isaiah, when she came to the point where Isaiah says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child. At that point, all the powers of her soul concentrated on this verse. And she reached God. And she prayed very fervently. In noetic prayer, Lord, please, let, let me become the slave of that mother who will give birth to the Messiah. And right after that, they say that Archangel Gabriel appeared and stated, Mary, not the slave, you'll be the mother. So, all in those 12 years, in the Holy of Holies, she attached her news, her entire, like, entire existence, to God only. She was seen by the angel of God and by God only, and she only had eyes for God only. So the angel, the archangel Gabriel appears. He enters the room. She was in her home. And the scripture says that she was troubled. She was troubled. Of course, 
She was startled. It's a perfectly human reaction. But she was even more troubled by his saying, You shall conceive. She was troubled because she was thinking, Now what is this? What are these words? Is this some kind of a flattery? What if this angel is trying to deceive me like Eve? She remembers, she knows about old Eve. I mean, here's a young man, because he didn't appear with wings. Okay? I mean, I know that the icons show wings, but he appeared like a natural young man, like a human being. So here's a young man standing in front of her, and her entire virtuous being was mobilized instantly. She's well aware of the flattery that weekend Eve. She's reserved, modest, and somewhat defensive. And the angel reassures her, reassures her fear not, Mary. He senses her fear. Fear is a perfectly natural reaction. She's not afraid about her physical well-being. She feared of sin, of deception, of flattery, of pride. She feared about keeping her treasures unspoiled. You will conceive and in thy womb will bring forth the Son of the Most High. You will bring forth a Son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And here we have the Annunciation of the Angel. How does she respond? Oh, that's wonderful. No. She responds, How shall this be? Seeing I know no man. She's not doubting. She's not doubting at all the words of the angel. She's not doubting the might of God. According to St. Theophilactus, she simply wants more information on the subject. Now, six months before, the same Archangel, Archangel Gabriel, foretold Zacharias the great news about the Lord's forerunner. About the Lord's forerunner. Zacharias responded pretty much the same way. How can this be? How can I know this? So why the difference in treatment? Why is the Virgin Mary treated differently than Zacharias? Because she's more favored? 
No, God has no favoritism. Zechariah says, how can this be? For I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. And Archangel Gabriel castigated Zacharias. He says, okay, well, you'll find out how. Just, you'll go speechless for about nine, nine months or so. You won't be able to talk, and then you'll find out. <laughs> Why is that? Why the different treatment? It's very simple. Zacharias had unbelief. Because as a teacher of the law, he had many examples of God's similar intervention. He had many examples. Abraham and Sarah. She was about 70. Or was she 90? I think 90. She was barren. Anna was barren. Samuel's mother. Elkanah's wife. Samson's mother was barren. These were all barren women. And God opened their womb. So Zechariah displays unbelief. All these women knew Amen. They were all wives. But the Virgin Mary, something different going on here. She's totally dedicated to the Lord, and marital union has never, it was never an option for her. She's well aware that children are the fruit of a marital union. And yet she says, I know no man. There is no man in my life. Joseph was 80 years old and nothing more than a guardian, according to the scriptural account. If she had in mind to marry Joseph in a few months, then the natural consequence, the natural train of thought in this conversation would be, Mary, you will have a son. And the intellectual train of thought would be, oh, okay, I will marry Joseph in a year, I will have a son, that's wonderful. In her mind, in her being, this was never an option. And she says, I know no man. Joseph is not her man. He's simply a papu, like Father Joseph. <laughs> He's a papu. <laughs> He's helping her along. He has six, seven children from another wife. And he's serving in God's economy. So the the archangel fully understands her dilemma and explains away her concern. 
Mary, the Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow thee. And on top of all this, let me give you a sign. Because God, to uphold the human nature in very difficult revelations, he always provides a sign. Always. In the historical events where God intervenes dynamically with history, he always presents a sign. After the flood, we have the sign of the rainbow. He gave many signs to Pharaoh. But look, the God of Israel is in command. And here, he gives a sign to the Theotokos. The confirmation of all this, Mary, is this. Your cousin Elizabeth is in her sixth month. Go and see for yourself. You see. Can you imagine the psychology of this of the Virgin Mary without this powerful sign of God? To sit there, you know, and have her mind and have this secret all to herself because her humility would not allow her to expound on this, to even share this with anyone. She kept herself from telling Joseph. She chose to be accused of adultery. And she chose the gruesome consequences of that than to take a chance by telling Joseph, guess what? The heaven thinks I'm something wonderful. Guess what happened? I saw, I saw an angel. He said nothing. Silence. So this is the sign. The cousin Elizabeth has also conceived a son. The Magi are led by a sign to keep them going in their direction, by a star. During the nativity, the shepherds in Bethlehem, the angels told them, go to the manger. And this is the sign. You'll see a child wrapped in swaddling clothes. This is the sign, the proof that everything we're telling you is true. The sign of the crucifixion was a Free our darkness. And on that day, the Lord will be asking the Jews and the Pharisees, Did you not see the three hour darkness? Okay, you did not believe. That's fine. You couldn't believe. It's understandable. But how about the three hour darkness? How about those that resurrected from the tombs and came and visited you in Jerusalem? So these are God's powerful signs. 
So she travels for three, four days immediately after the Annunciation. In haste, we read in the scriptures. Spuvi, in haste. She didn't have much to pack up. Uh, when she died, her word, her word robe consisted of two dresses. Two. The one, the extra one, she gave to one of her best friends in the village. And she was buried with the other one. So she travels for three or four days on foot to visit her cousin to share her bursting joy. She needs to share her joy with someone of like mind. So she went into the hill country, a city of Judah, with haste. She's holding the world's greatest mystery inside of her. God just incarnated inside of her. The greatest mystery under the sun, hidden before all ages. All this was just unraveling inside of her. Inside of a 15-year-old. And she needs to share all this with someone, her elder cousin Elizabeth. And she enters the house and greets, salutes Elizabeth. She greets Elizabeth. Now, there's no record of the words used by the Theotokos. She spoke words. She didn't just embrace her and hug her. She actually spoke a greeting. And her words coming out of her were so imbued by the Holy Spirit, so charged, so much full of grace, that Elizabeth says a little bit later, For as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my eardrums, in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy, and blessed is she that believed. St. John the Baptist was jumping when he sensed that the Lord, his cousin in the flesh, was in the same room with him. He energized the prophetic gift in his mother, and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. And here we have the greatest prophetic dialogue spoken by two women. And Elizabeth says, And whence is this to me? And why should I be so fortunate? And what did I ever do to deserve such a great honor? That the mother of my Lord should come to me and hear the Holy Spirit speaking through Elizabeth calls Mary Kyriotokos, the mother of the Lord. The mother of the Lord. Who is the Lord of the Old Testament? Who is the Lord of Israel? That's what she's referring to. Is he not the Lord of Abraham, Jacob, the Lord of the prophets, of kings of Moses, the God of Israel? Elizabeth addresses the virgin mother of God at this point. The God of Israel 
recreated himself in the womb of the virgin. The fathers say, he enriched himself. God the Logos came poor. He only came with one nature. And now he left with two. He came as God, but now he leaves as God Man, Of course, he never left. He's always here. But he took the human nature to heaven. This makes her truly Theotokos, as the Orthodox Church Fathers call her from the second century. As early as the second century, we find this in the writings of origin. He calls her Theotokos, which is the jetty that crushes all heresies. Is that the, uh, the Da Vinci Code, you know, Da Vinci hoax, who states that, you know, nobody really believed that Christ was God until the first ecumenical council? It's ridiculous. If she is Theotokos, then what is he? See, this is why the term Theotokos contains all the economy of divine dispensation, all God's economy. That term crushes any doubts about who Christ is. If she is the Theotokos, then are our children have any doubt who Christ is? She is the mother of God. Christ is God. Last year or the year before, we mentioned about some of the misconceptions in some of the verses in the New Testament. We talked about the menunye, that special word that's translated, blessed rather, making the Lord disagree somehow with this woman who was in ecstasy, who got up and says, blessed is the woman that gave you birth and the breast that gave you milk. And Christ says, well, yeah, but uh, blessed rather. There's no rather. There's no rather about it. The Greek says, menunia means you said it. Exactly. Indeed. Blessed are all those who keep the word of God and apply it. Like my mother. 100% agreement. So this year, we will try to cover the first three verses of the prophetic dialogue and more specifically of the ninth ode, the most joyous ode found in the scriptures. The ninth ode begins with the words, Megalini ipsichimu ton kirion, my soul magnifies the Lord, and we find that in Luke 146. And this ode finishes as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever in Luke 55. 155. There are ten verses, and this is the longest contribution of the Theotokos to the New Testament. These prophetic verses have been espoused by our church from the beginning in her daily services. 
They're full of grace. Maybe some of you here are catechumens or even new converts. And you probably know that our church is very wealthy, very rich in services, hymnody, symbolism, hymnology and iconography. And all these things enhance and complement the understanding of the scriptures, which is not an end in itself. Sometimes we absolutize the scriptures. We absolutize the Bible. It's simply a tool. It is a vehicle. The purpose of the understanding is to make us worshippers of Christ in spirit and truth. This orthodoxia, and many times I see people intellectualize the faith. We get caught up on terms and terminology, and uh, you know this word means that, and the, the exact. It's not enough just to know the meaning and to know the theology. We must go from orthodoxia, true faith, to orthopraxia, orthopraxy. True application of the faith. So we can develop a steadfast union with God. So the ninth ode has been, the ninth ode of the Theotokos has been the beloved ode of the New Testament church. Much more so than the three odes of Moses, the odes of David, Solomon, the ode of Habakkuk, Judith, Deborah, and so on. The holy people of God in different times in history, overcome by divine zeal and exhilaration from the miraculous intervention of God, expressed the overflow of their hearts with song and hymns and even dance in the Old Testament. And they were glorifying and offered doxologies to God. And these we call oaths of the Old Testament. So our church has selected eight odes from the Old Testament and included them in the service of Matins. And we include them in our services all through the year. <clears throat> We have the Ode of Moses in Exodus 15. I already mentioned about this when Miriam grabbed the temporal and began to sing to the Lord. We have the Ode of uh, Moses in Deuteronomy, the second Ode of Moses. Then we have the Ode of Anna. She became extremely exhilarated after she became pregnant, she, she conceived. And we find that ode in the second chapter of Samuel, in the book of Samuel. Habakkuk, when he was, he was really uh, troubled, because he was thinking, now Lord, why is it that some people, you know, the sinners seem to be doing well on this earth. The sinners don't seem to get punished sometimes. And the righteous, they suffer. We call that Theodikia. When we kind of criticize God, now Lord, why are you doing this this way? And of course, God revealed to him in prophecy a number of events. And then Habakkuk is overcome by the divine spirit, by the Holy Spirit. And then he hymns and he glorifies the Lord. 
in his ode. We have the ode of Isaiah, which uh, we use some of the verses during Holy Week, when we chant Alleluia in the beginning. And then we have Jonah. You all remember what happened to Jonah. When he found out that he was still breathing, you know, in a whale, he began to glorify the Lord and he began to prophesy. We have another ode from the three youths in the furnace. And actually, two odes from them, when they began to glorify God. And then after that, the eighth ode, where we use it in the service, in the matin service of Holy Saturday, Great Saturday. The prayer and the hymnody of the three youths in the fire. And the ninth ode is the ode of the Virgin Mary, and the church combines with that the prayer of Zechariah after being silenced for nine months, and when he wrote the name John on a tablet, then the speech of Zechariah was loosened, and then he overflowed by jubilation, exhilaration in the Holy Spirit, and then he spoke those prophetic words. So the odes of the Old Testament, the odes of Moses, Jonah, the three youths, pertain to the salvation of the body, mainly. But the ninth ode is the ode of the new grace, not for mundane and earthly philanthropy, but for immaterial and heavenly charismas. It's the new song. And you can see the wisdom and the beauty of our church. This ode of the Theotokos is placed toward the second half of the Matins. And, uh, you know, Matins in the early church was not at nine o'clock in the morning. You know, if you go to St. Anthony's or some of the nearby monasteries, that's why monasteries are so beautiful. They really unfold in front of us. The tradition of the church. They teach us how to be Christians. By the way they live, the way they worship. The church place this ode very early in the morning, in the second part, in the second half of Matins. Why? Because she is the dawn, the mystical dawn of the day. Because she will bring the light of the day. She's the Theotokos. Rejoice, O mother of the unsetting star. Rejoice, O dawn of the mystical day. We read in the, in the Akathist. The Theotokos dissipates the darkness of the demons and idolatry by bringing the sweet light of the sun of righteousness. So right before the sun appears, we read, we chant the ode to the Theotokos, symbolizing that she is the dawn of the new day, of the day of the Lord. The ninth ode starts when the priest comes out of the altar and sings, Let's magnify the Theotokos and the Mother of Light, honoring her with hymns. The priest senses then the entire congregation while the chanters melodically chant her ode 
this prophetic dialogue, repeating after each verse the most beautiful and sweetest hymn written by Cosmas the hymnographer, more honorable than the cherubim, and beyond compare, more glorious than the seraphim, thee who without corruption gave us birth to God the Logos, the word, the very Theotokos, thee do we magnify. See, the saints, they live the mystery of the church every day. They escape this earthly reality. They, they bypass the stuff that we have in our everyday life. They go, they transcend. When Christ is being born, they're there. They, they live the birth. They live the resurrection. They live the crucifixion. Our saints live it. They are mystically there. And this saint, this great hymnographer, the brother of St. John of Damascus, Cosmas, of Bishop of Mayoma, on one good Friday he was feeling the pain of the Theotokos. He was feeling her torture under the cross. He was feeling it in the spirit. And he sat down and he wrote this beautiful hymn, helped by her, of course. He wrote this hymn. And an angel appeared to him and told him how much she was consoled and how much she loved this hymn. And since then, the church espoused this hymn and sings it every day, more honorable than the cherubim and beyond compare, more glorious than the seraphim, thee who without corruption gave us birth to God the Logos, the very Theotokos, thee do we magnify. 